Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will be looking this morning in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. You can find it on in your pew Bible on page 830 and 831. This is God's Word. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest." So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The grass withers and the flowers Fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Let's pray together. O Lord, as we hope to understand your word of truth this morning, we pray not for the words of this man, but from the man, that is Christ Jesus, would you speak for your servants are listening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a new year. I'm not sure if you knew that yet. Maybe you haven't seen any reminders. Uh, there's a lot of fun things about new years. Yes. There's also a lot of challenges. I'm not sure which one that is for you. Maybe you are the one who spent most of your weekend undecorating and redecorating. Maybe you're the one who are pointing at those people saying, why did it take you so long? Or why are your decorations still up? Maybe you are the gifted organizer 
and you have been overly stressed this past week because you did not organize before Christmas and now you have an abundance of new things that you have to find a place for. There's lots of new challenges. If you're like me, one of the new challenges, my wife and I were talking about it the other night, it takes me typically a couple of months to remember that I'm in a new year. So if you're writing checks, if, if you do that kind of thing anymore, but if you write checks, how do you fill out the year? There's other new challenges. Some of you, you've already experienced them or some will about to. You have this great new idea and that is you want to go to the gym and get in shape. I need to help you understand the the wait times have exponentially gone up. And those of you who faithfully go, you are now very frustrated because you have never waited to use weights until the new year. I actually thought that was gonna benefit me this morning. Sunday mornings, what I do with my older two is we do donuts with daddy. I thought Duncan's line would be just a little bit shorter because of the emphasis on healthier eating. I was wrong. I don't know about the gyms yet, but Duncan, however, has not caught up to the new year. The point is, new years bring lots of new things. And often, what we as God's people need to be reminded It's not something that's new, but what or who is God? He's not new. How do we anchor our lives in a year in which we know nothing about? Often we need to know, well, what is the unchangeable word? Christian, you need to know that as much as there are new things coming and you're not aware of, do you know what's not new? What it means to be a Christian And yet we often do need perhaps a new or fresh reminder. What does it mean to be a Christian? And that's really what this parable is about. It's actually a quite simple narrative. Jesus is writing to his disciples. It's in a host of a few parables. And what he is doing is he is describing for them what it's going to be like when he leaves. Not so much his death, but after he has resurrected from the dead and he has ascended into heaven, what are the people of God to be about? Just previous to this parable, it's the parable of the ten virgins, and what is Jesus trying to impress upon his people? You need to be prepared. You need to be watching out. But that's not what he's saying here. Here he seems to be far more practical in saying, how do you live in between the time when Christ has ascended into heaven and when he returns? And here he's not saying watch. He's saying work. We are to be Christians who work. Now let me pause for just a moment because I think that there's a real temptation when we read this parable. Some of us are gonna be tempted to say or think something like this. This is a good word. This is a timely word. And that guy over there needs to hear it. Or perhaps you're trying not to be obvious now and looking around the room. I hope you're listening. And I want you to understand, if that is you, you are missing the words of Jesus. This would have utterly shocked his own disciples because he is talking to them. And he is saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. 
men be warned. And he's saying the same thing today. Church of God, listen. Do not look around the room for someone else, but listen for yourself and be warned. It is a powerful and hard reminder, but what he is trying to tell them has eternal ramifications. And so we want to look at it and say, not how does this apply to the gentleman down the pew, but how does this look and apply to my own heart, my own life? I've already told you the the plot is quite simple, isn't it? You've got a master. You've got three servants. The king or the master is, is Jesus. He wants them to understand that. I am the king and I am the master. I'm going to go on a long trip and, well, when I return, we'll settle accounts. And he's got three servants. Who are the servants that he's talking about? He's not saying he only has three. He's talking about three kinds of servants. And he's saying, those are my disciples. That is you and that is me this morning. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And yet, he wants them to understand. I want you, people of God, to know how to be not only prepared, but productive in this life. And so I want to do so by looking at three points. Who is the master and what is he doing? That's verses 14 and 15. What are the responses of the servants? That is 16 through 18. And then what happens at the return of the master? That is 19 through 30. Well, look with me in the first couple of verses in this parable, verses 14 and 15. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. Jesus is using common language. It's an illustration, a picture of something that these people would have clearly understood. This is things that they embrace and engage with on a daily basis. Many of masters would have had servants, but I need you to understand something. We read in our translation and it says servant, but the literal translation is the word slave. And it's imperative that you and I understand that he's talking about a slave, because your understanding of that term will largely help you in understanding the entirety of the parable. If you miss this point, you will in fact miss the parable of what Jesus is saying. When he says slave, what is he saying? These are not my employees. These are not hired men. There is no union. They are not bargaining for contracts. They have specific obligations because they are, in fact, the property or the ownership of this master. These people were slaves. Christian, have you understood that that is your identity and status as a follower of Christ? You are his slave, you are not a hired worker. You are not paid upon performance. You are his. He owns you. That's why Paul uses the language. You were bought with a price. Now, I understand some of you are probably uncomfortable with the word I'm using, 
That word slave in our day has a much weightier understanding to it because it draws our attention to things, doesn't it? We're quickly reminded of the North American slave trade or perhaps even the British slave trade when most of them were Africans, were being wrongfully, sinfully, entirely taken from their homeland and forced into labor without rights. That is not the New Testament's understanding of that word. These slaves were not being forced into something. In fact, most of them were highly skilled and educated, some more than their masters. They were in charge of an estate. And at times, they were so well paid, they were able to get their own freedom and begin their own life. It is not the same use of the word in which we have understood it in our history. Because Jesus is trying to tell you something about himself and about you if you follow him. What it means to be a Christian. You are owned, you are possessed by Christ. That's why you and I confidently say things like, I belong to Jesus because he has the rights over our life. What else do we learn about this master? He knows something about his slaves, doesn't he? It's more than just their name, Joe, Danny, and Sally. There's more to it than that because what does he do? He gives to one five, one two, and one one talent according to their ability. He knows his people. He knows you way better than you know yourself. He gives to you according to your ability and better stated, according to his ability in you to do and accomplish what he has given to you. So he entrusts something to them. And what does he entrust? A talent. No, not the natural abilities that you and I often think about. He wasn't looking at his servants and thinking, that's going to be a great athlete. That's a great musician. That's a great cook. That's not the word talent. The reason the word talent shows up in your Bible is because it's the transliteration of the Greek, talentin. It's literally just taken right from there. And so how do we understand the word talent? Well, it was a measure of, of weight or money. It's a description of wealth. And what this master is saying is he is entrusting something of his wealth to his servants. Now, what is he entrusting to them? We saw five talents, two and one. There's some disagreement as to how much a talent is worth. Your Bible doesn't tell you, was this a measurement of gold or of silver or some other form of precious precious stone, what we know is it is a talent. And so how much is a talent? Well, most people would say a, a denarius is one day's labor. Talent is anywhere between 6,000 and 10,000 denarii. To save you some math for those of you who aren't quite awake and, or quite ready, what is he describing here about how much wealth he is entrusting to these people? One talent would approximately be somewhere between 15 and 38 years of labor. All the way up to the five talents, which is at least 75 years of labor. Many of you who are on the verge of retirement, you are quite aware of some of these forms of payment and labor. But that's what he's saying here. I'm entrusting 
something to this one that is 75 years of labor, all the way down to at least 15 years. This is not an insignificant amount of money or wealth. It's extremely gracious and generous what he's entrusting to them. And he says, I'm giving to you my wealth for my purposes. He's not writing it off for tax purposes. He's not saying, take and do what you want. He's saying, I'm giving it to you and I expect you to manage and steward it well. In case you're not seeing the picture, what is Jesus saying? I am the Lord. I own all the resources and I own all of my people. I own it all. It's all mine. And I am entrusting it to you. It demands our attention because what Jesus is saying here is meant to shock you and to surprise you. And he's meant to say, you were meant to say to yourself, well, what does this mean for me? How do I understand what has been entrusted to me? The master of all is entrusting to me some great amount of wealth. It's a parable. It means it has a practical application and an implication for you and for me. And so what is he saying? He's saying, if you want to understand the definition of privilege, here it is. I, the master of all, am entrusting to you something of great value and of great wealth. If you were a Christian this morning, have you considered the privileges of what it means to be a child of God? Do you understand when Jesus says, I have bought your life and I have given you life, the privilege, the riches of his grace that has been bestowed upon you? Do you consider the weight of that? Some people will try to illustrate, do you know how wealthy you are compared to others in the world? There's a time and a place for that. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not looking at you at a monetary level and saying, how much money do you make versus the one who lives way over there? What he is saying to you is, do you understand the privileges of what it means to be a Christian? Lift your eyes above your bank account and see the one who is enthroned in heaven and what he has done and what he has given to you. Do you understand those riches? He has given you the means of grace. He has given to you his revealed eternal word. He has provided for you sacraments, one that's sitting here right before you. He has given to you each other, the fellowship of the saints. He has given to you access to his throne in which you can pray. He has given to you the Sabbath in which you enter into this place and you get to worship him and you get to know him. You get to make much of him. He gives to you his word week after week, morning and evening, because you have a senior pastor who loves the word and loves to give it to you. He gives you the good news of the gospel that Jesus bore your sin on his body, on your behalf, that you might have his righteous record. That news is not even new news to you anymore. It's because that's what you get every week. What do you do with that kind of privilege? Some of you have seen the riches of God by bringing you out of darkness and into life. 
Some of you know that people have come to Christ in this congregation. Some of you have seen sin dwelling in your life and the Lord being merciful in rescuing you from that sin. Some of you have felt lost and isolated and alone and he has brought to you a community of people who love you, who want to see you, want to spend time with you. Some of you get to hear children proclaim eternal truths that their minds and their life is being shaped by kingdom purposes. This list you recognize goes on and on and on. It is how rich we are in the gospel, not because you or I have done anything to deserve it. Not a single one of those riches is yours because you did something for it. It is his merit and his merit alone. And the purpose, it's quite simple. He's about to make it. He's saying, if that is how rich you are, what kind of kingdom investment are you making? If you get this, Every single week, day in and day out, what are you doing with it? How are you investing such riches? The master will return, and he wants to see the return on his investment. And that is what he's going to explain through the response of the servants. How is it that we are to respond? What what do we see? Well, you... You get Matthew's description. He who had five talents went at once and traded with them. Two went at once and traded with them. And the one, he dug it in the ground and hid it. Why is that important? Because it means what Jesus is saying to you and to me is he cares about how you live. Your life matters. And I don't just mean that in a dignified way in the fact that you are an image bearer. That is true. What you do in life and with your life matters. And he is concerned with it. And what is he concerned with? He is not concerned with what you did, how well you did 10, 20, or 30 years in the past. He is not concerned with what you might do last year or this next year. He is concerned with what are you doing today. Because if he returns today, you settle the account today. How are you living today? That's how valuable your life is. And that's what his concern is, is what do you do with what I have given to you? And so he gives you three different perspectives. Two look very similar. Two of faithfulness and one of faithlessness. Now you could easily read this and say, are you saying that these two who seem to be faithful, work hard, and therefore have earned their salvation. No, that is not what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying, if you have done great investment work, you have earned yourself into heaven. In fact, the emphasis is not even on the first two servants. It's on the last one, who in fact does nothing with what he was given. What is Jesus trying to say? It's the issue of, Are you faithful with what you've been given? Or are you faithless? Because it is entirely possible 
to say the right things with your lips and your heart be far from him. And that is his point. How do these servants respond? The first two respond with love and with loyalty. You read it and you don't find any terms of which they said, oh, well, we better hurry. We don't want to get in trouble. They don't seem to be stressed. They don't seem to be doing it out of drudgery or begrudgingly. They seem to love him. They seem to be excited. They seem to be grateful and thankful. And so they get after it. Matthew tells you that they went at once, right away. They took the wealth. They took what was entrusted and they used it right away for the purpose of the master. And yet, the last one, he did nothing. Dr. Lou Priolo, he spoke to our church officers of few weeks back. And what he said was the opposite of faithfulness. He says it's laziness. And in fact, you can see that in this passage, can't you? The master is actually going to take it a step further. He's not going to just say you're lazy. He's going to say you're wicked. When you do nothing, you are wicked. The third one is lazy. There's no other way around it. He is being wicked. How? Because he recognizes he has received something that is not his, but he cares not that it's not his. He cares not for the master. He does, in fact, nothing. He buries it in the ground. And that's the only action that we see from him is the nothingness or the burying of his talent in the ground. And it's a profound picture, isn't it? Because that's the point of the entire New Testament, All of the teaching that Paul and the gospel writers give to you and to me about the gifts of the Spirit, it has one end goal, and that is to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Nobody cares how good of a teacher you are if at the end of the day, the only thing they think highly of is you. What God is trying to do when he gifts his people with gifts, he's saying, your purpose is to use this gift that others might see Christ. So if you have the gift of teaching, we want you to teach because we want Jesus to be seen. If you have the gift of singing, if you have the gift of playing an instrument, we want you to use them, but not so that we can look so highly at you and your talent. We want to see Jesus in music, not music for music. If you have the gift of management or organization or hospitality, we don't have enough time to keep going. But you can recognize, are you using these gifts to show forth Christ? Is he the one being seen through your gift? Or is it merely you? The point of your gift is for Christ. It's not for you. It's for the body. How do you evaluate such things? It's the point of what you do on a daily basis, isn't it? How do you see yourself in the response to the servants? What's your feeling like when you wake up on Sunday mornings and it's time to go to church? Are you the one who thinks it better stay within that 60-minute timeline? I've got things to do. Are you the one who says, I don't think it's worth it. It's not as much fun as I hoped it would be. Or they don't have this, or they don't have that, They're not good at this. They're not good at that. If you see the Christian life as a drag, you need to hear the warning of Christ. 
He wants you to see him and be overwhelmed with him, not be overburdened by him. That's entirely opposed to what he has said he has done for you. And Jesus is saying, I want you to be encouraged or I want you to be exhorted, but it depends on what kind of servant are you. Are you investing or are you burying? And so what happens? Well, the master returns, not accidentally, but intentionally. He has a purpose. He returns and he is going to settle accounts with his servants. And I think Matthew wants you to understand something. That's why in verse 19, he says, now after a long time, he wants you to understand, we don't know when he's going to return. And it's not your goal in life to try to figure out when he's going to return. Your goal in life is to do what you're called to do until he returns. You have a life now. What are you doing with it? There will be a long delay. And as much as I think if we're honest, that can be frustrating because we can see so much more evil. It's also very gracious because there are no other options as soon as he comes back. There is no more time. And I need you to understand that. You only have this life. You only have this time. You cannot bank on what is later. You do not have ownership of it. You have ownership of where you are and what he has given to you. And so what does he say? When the master returns, do you know what seems to be so harsh about his return? It's that judgment comes. But do you know where the judgment seems to begin? We all are going to say that Christ is going to return and he's going to judge the world, but that's not what he says here. The judgment does not seem to begin out there. It seems to begin in here. He begins with his own people, his own family, his own children, in-house, takes priority. And so when he comes back, how are we living And so he settles these accounts. The first two servants hear something very similar. Well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. There are many points to make here, but I just want to draw your attention to a few. One is the issue or um, challenge of approval. You know, sometimes people say things like this. Approval's an idol in your life. People have said that to me before. I need you to understand approval's not the problem. It's whose approval that's the problem. Why is approval not the problem? Because approval, do you know what happens when you're seeking approval? It shapes your life. And so the question is, whose approval do you want? If you want the approval of man, that is a problem because it will shape your life. You will be shaped by the practices and cultural trends of man. But if you want the approval of Christ, he will shape your life. That is not a wrong thing to want, not a wrong thing to desire the approval of Christ. We should all want his approval. But what does Christ say? What does the master say when he settles these accounts? He says, well done, good and faithful servant. He describes their work. He even adds a quantity to it. He qualifies it and he quantifies it. 
You have been faithful. And if you read it carefully, you should have been very surprised by what he says. You have been faithful. How? Over a little. And you should stop right there. A little? That was 75 plus years of labor. How is that a little? At the bare minimum, we're talking about 15 years of work. How is that a little? And do you know what he is saying to you, Christian? That is how valuable faithfulness is. That if you are faithful with the life that he has given to you, it is of exceeding value to even 75 years of labor. What you have done on behalf of God by being faithful is of greater value than just a 75-year lifespan of work. That is the wealth of faithfulness. Is that how you evaluate faithfulness? That it is invaluable in many respects. That if you are faithful in what it means to trust Christ, to worship Christ, to obey Christ, to put away sin in your life, to love his church, to pursue holiness, that that value is far surpassing to anything else you'll ever experience in this life. And what is so incredible is what he says to them. This is how valuable, and it wasn't because servant A did it for one day. It was a pattern, and so is the reward. You are not striving for a day of glory. You are striving for an eternity of glory. The pattern of what it means to be in the presence of God. It's not some passive place. It's not some inactive place. You've heard those terrible illustrations, the angels on the clouds sitting around. That is not heaven. You will work in heaven. Don't be shocked by that. But it will be good work. It will be glorious work. It will be edifying work. And you will enjoy every minute of it. And it will always work. That's the best part. You'll never mess it up. And those you're working for, they won't mess you up. It's a good thing. That is what you're longing for, is that kind of reality, that life that is to be had for all eternity. And do you know what is incredible about what he says? He says the same thing to the one who has five talents and the one who has two. So he has just told you, don't be the one who always needs to have the five talents. I have made you according to your ability that I know of you. This is what I've entrusted to you. The goal is not to be the five talent person. And I mean this out of utter respect for you. Some of you are five talents. And some of you are two, and praise the Lord for every one of you, because that's how he's made you, and you are responsible appropriately for how he has made you. It is the same call, and yet it's divided depending on how he has made you. If you're a five-talent person, you are not better than a two-talent. You're just a five-talent. If you are a two-talent, you need not five. You need to be faithful with what he's given you. I think Jesus is showing some of his cards here because I don't think he's trying to motivate you to live faithfully just for that. It's that last little phrase that seems to catch everything, doesn't it? What does he say? 
enter into the joy of your master. I really appreciate what one man said. He says here, he's talking about this world and this life. Here, some drops of joy enter into us, but there we shall enter into joy. Isn't that amazing? Something that enters into you that you might be joyful. There, you enter into that. You enter into joy. You enter into the presence of your master where there is no distraction from it. And he says, that is for every one of you who are faithful, who trust me, whose lives are shaped by me. The last servant, however, did not receive a commendation, did he? What he received was condemnation. He tries to argue with the master. He provides an excuse, doesn't he? He provides an excuse and, in fact, even accuses the master. He says, I knew you to be a hard man. I know you to be a man who profits in places in which you do not even invest. You're a mean master. You're difficult. You're restrictive. You're judgmental. And those terms, you can already hear. Is that not how many people think of Jesus? That's the kind of master you are. You're, you're restrictive. You're judgmental. What is the servant saying? Here, it's yours. You take it. It's not my responsibility anymore. I'm done with it. That was yours. Your problem, not mine. And so he says, I was afraid. I didn't know what to do. So I dug it in the ground. It's a common testimony of churchgoers, isn't it? That week after week, we can hear the gospel and literally do nothing with it. You've given to me this truth. You've given to me this church, and I do nothing with it. I bury it in the ground. And so Jesus calls him wicked, and he calls him lazy, dishonest. If that's really the case, servant, you would have at very least entrusted my money to the bankers so I could earn interest. You did not even do that. You're wicked. You're lazy. And all he did was nothing. It's very revealing because his non-action seemed to be the greatest action of the parable, isn't it? He did nothing and it revealed a whole lot. I'm just here for me, my comforts, my plans, my pleasures. I'm the master, not you. And so he says, you were cast out. It's a sobering, hard word because you can surround yourself with all kinds of good theology. You can surround yourself with all kinds of good preaching and teaching and Christian behavior and it matter not. If you do nothing, you get nothing. And all that Jesus is saying is, if there's no fruit, there is no faith. And if you have no faith, you have no future with me. It's a very hard word because we don't know anything about this servant. He doesn't seem to be an adulterer. He doesn't seem to be a murderer or some kind of thief. He's just to do nothing kind of person. 
and he's cast out. When you think about this new year and things that you want to see happen, perhaps dreams or plans, do any of them line up with what God would want to see happen? With what God expects out of you, what it means to be faithful in this life. If that doesn't describe you, I'm pleading with you. Please hear this warning. As much as it's exciting for a new year, there's not a lot of good new things for you because you know not life. You, knew, you do not understand the generosity and grace of your master. I'll close with this quote. J.C. Ryle says this about this specific parable. Let us leave this parable with a solemn determination by God's grace never to be content with the profession of Christianity without practice. Let us not only talk about religion, but act. Let us not only feel the importance of saving faith in Christ, but do something too. Do not be a do-nothing Christian. Make your life by being faithful to Christ, one that have lips that praise him, lives that proclaim him, that everyone might know this master. Let me pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we do thank you. We thank you that we are not our own for those who trust in Christ, but in fact, body and soul belong to Christ Jesus. And in our belonging, it provides our comfort and our courage in this life. And so, Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to be the servant, the slave who understands what you have entrusted to us, the gospel privileges and riches that we might invest them, not because we're good investors, but because we have a great master who works in and through us. And yet, O oh Lord, we pray for those who might hear even this moment, whom that is not true of. Would you please draw their hearts that they might see Christ Jesus and put their faith in him, that this is not only a new year, but a new life, a new life beginning with Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, as we prepare to come to the table, we want to do so through the understanding of what was paid for us. We want to acknowledge to him our sin. And so take a few moments in a private confession of sin. And then I will read a prayer for us as our corporate confession of sin. So let's take a moment and privately confess. Join your hearts with me as I pray corporately for us. O God of grace, thou hast imputed my sin to my substitute and hast imputed his righteousness to my soul. 
clothing me with the bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness. But in my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I'm always standing clothed in filthy garments, and by grace I'm always receiving change of raiment, for thou dost always justify the ungodly. I'm always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and thou art always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning, let me wear it. Every evening, return in it. Go out to the day's work in it. Be married in it. Be wound in death in it. Stand before the great white throne in it. Enter heaven in it, shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ the exceeding beauty of holiness, and the exceeding wonder of grace.